0: Hi everybody and welcome to no Country. my name is Jay David Osborne. that is Chris Sacknesom Chris how are you doing this evening
1: I'm very well David very well thank you you good
0: I'm doing great. I missed the Super Bowl just didn't feel like watching it. did you catch any of it
1: well it, it's still on where I am and uh I you know what I saw was was very disappointing it, it you know the that sort of great you know championship game historically is either very exciting. Or very you know boring and disappointing and uh i don't know it it was uh it it wasn't enthralling me i'm 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 I'm, it's it's, uh it was halftime a little while ago here and i i just that was enough for me so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah no i feel the same way i've never been a big football guy it's been a good week here the weather's been getting colder and colder we're headed into our coldest week here in oklahoma We'll drop down into the teens, which I'm kind of looking forward to. I like cold weather. Um, I think it's nice. But uh, we had a mouse issue in the house, which I suppose happens when you live in a house that's built in the 70s. And, you know, you live in Oklahoma, right? There's going to be mice. But I've been trying to lay non-lethal traps everywhere, and they're just just not working. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to move towards the... The snappy boys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, yeah, yeah. There comes a point where you just can't fool around with you know being humane. It's just no. It, it's a fight for your life, as they say in, in Mouse Country in Australia. You know, it's. Uh, I understand. I've, I I went through a, a mice plague, and it's um it's something to be dealt with. There is no doubt. You know.
0: We first knew that there were mice in the house when. We left a batch of cookies on the oven Um, overnight. We just kind of fell asleep and left the cookies there without putting them in Tupperware and putting them away. And we woke up the next morning and the cookies were gone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. So, you know, it happens. So, on that note, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay, well, we've been um, meditating
1: and discussing a very interesting and complex uh, subject of a sense of hauntedness that seems to be a fundamental part of the human condition. And it takes different forms, but we can sort of summarize it maybe as the mysterious double, uh, the stranger within, uh, doppelgangers and vartagers, which as we mentioned in an earlier episode, is a Scandinavian concept of uh, a ghostly double projected into the future. So it's a premonitory spirit, or literally a uh, ghost of the future. Um, twins, reflections that uh, come to life in, in odd ways. This whole sense of, of an uncanny sense of doubleness that, that seems to be part of the human experience, both from the private psychic world all the way into culture. various ways and we looked at to start with uh, some great examples of the mysterious double and stranger in folklore and mythology from around the world and then we moved into the realm of of literature Uh, many many examples of it it's a a very popular theme both in in popular culture and in more uh, highbrow art Um, but we summarized a position coming out of there, which seems to run throughout world culture, um, where there's a conflict between the sense of doubleness being a powerful, good thing, and perhaps that could be uh, seen, you know, and say we talked about Joseph Conrad's uh, short story, The Secret Sharer, uh, where the double... Uh, is very much an ally, an asset, Um, so a good thing, right? Two people Mm -hmm. are an army. Uh, When we have a sense of of otherness within ourselves, sometimes that's a really good thing. Um, On the other hand, um, there's that sense of the double and the shadow as being uh, a saboteur, uh, a demon, uh, a dark side. An animus, something that is not uh, good or that we're in conflict with. And we looked at it is an ex, you know, the an iconic example of that it would be Robert Louis Stevenson's novella, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, people understand that concept, whether they've ever had any contact with that story itself or not. So we've been looking at, at this complicated issue of the doubleness, and maybe that, you know, one theory is that goes to, you know, the the two hemispheres of the brain. Uh, I think it just seems to permeate human consciousness, and maybe it, it is one of the defining points of consciousness. The question is, how can we, I guess, maximize uh, the secret sharer asset and somehow integrate, cope with, and deal with the Mr. or Ms. Hyde dark side. So that's kind of where we've gotten up to. Um, but I thought that it would where we we want to go now, I guess, is to to really ground this giant world culture theme down to the very, very human personal level. Things that that people, everyone can understand immediately. That's part of our, our day-to-day existence. And I think a a good way to look at that is the voices or voice within our head. Um, I don't know about you. No, I do know about you. I know about, I think we know about everyone. There's a sense of an interior monologue, a stream of consciousness that's with us throughout, you know, waking life. Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, one of the theories of dreaming is that it's an escape from that voice. So what do you think about that as a starting point to look at the, the implications of this silent voice, which is kind of an oxymoron when you think just to begin with, you know, a silent voice, but it's there.
0: I think it's a great place to start. I think that the, the first thought that comes to my mind is what was I thinking before I knew how to read and before I knew how to, speak English. Right. So I'm, some of my earliest memories take place in my grandmother's house. And I recall the way that I felt about the stairs going down to her basement. So she, a woman lived in her basement for most of my grandmother's life. She was a shut in, um, very nice woman, but just like to be alone. But the stairs leading down to her sort of basement apartment had this eerie feeling to them. And I can remember being three or four. So, you know, language exists at that time. You have words, but nowhere near the kind of vocabulary that we have now, um, or even that you have when you're in your teenage years. And I remember um, the kind of sensation of looking at that as a, as a, a sort of physical presence of otherness. And... I wonder if the the silent voice in our head doesn't isn't in a way sort of drowning out the the animistic feel of the world around us. So that those are kind of my preliminary thoughts about that. And I figured it would be maybe good to start there because that's where life begins. Indeed it does. And it, it's interesting that I mean. Thinking
1: about that, you know the expression ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny physically. Um, You know, a human fetus or or any fetus undergo, you know, demonstrates and performs the pre-evolutionary stages that have you know brought it to that species to that point. Kind of what you're suggesting is that that individually we may be recapitulating the development of human consciousness at large. You know, so that by metaphor and analogy, uh, a pre-linguistic infant's experience of the world and their own internal psyche is some kind of strange echo and shadow of what the entire human species must have undergone. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And I think that you can look at tribal people Particularly in South America, who speak language a bit different than we do. I'm thinking of, um, no, I don't, it wasn't, oh, yes, it was Ed, Eduardo Cohn. I almost said Viveros de Castro, but that's a different guy. Eduardo Cohn wrote a book called How Forests Think. And in that book, he spends a lot of time with the Runapuma people in Peru, I would like to say. And there's a lot of interesting. Talk in that book about things like you know semiotics and sort of how these tribal people communicate with each other, and their language is much more. I'm gonna butcher this, but um, it's it's more onomatopoeia. Mm I almost tried to say onomatopoeic, but I'm I'm not sure that's what it is. (laughs) But so there's a lot more in the in the realm of sound effects, and these are people who give a lot more. Credence and importance to dreams and the dream world than than we do. So it feels like perhaps the yeah, the less vocabulary you have, the more you are you're in touch with that that field around you.
1: Well, this is I, I think true around the world. I mean, there's been some wonderful work done uh, with the pygmy people in Central Africa. It's certainly true of of the peoples of of New Guinea and and Melanesia at large that I'm directly aware of it. There's some great anthropological work on this that uh, that real real serious field work where where is in as much direct personal research and and the feedback from the people themselves has has supported this this psychological idea that in a sense what you're saying is. There is a degree to which the increasing uh, dependence on recorded language and visual language is a kind of, of contaminant uh, in terms of experience and attention to the world. Uh, did you hear yourself saying that or is that that my inference? Because I, I think that's an
0: interesting inference. Um, could you say that one more time for me?
1: Well, insofar as um, i mean if we're saying that the 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 prelinguistic infant sense, which is really not prelinguistic at all, I mean we start sort of picking up on things it it's dependence on language it's it's being connected with other fields of perception that aren't funneled and narrowed down into uh, language and and we get increasingly funneled you know w- with our dependence on uh, written language, and then on the uh, connection of, of of language and text in terms of media, you know, electronic media. Um, so we get, our attention is, con- you know, continuously narrowed and f- well-focused is perhaps the better word, uh, rather than expanded. And, and when we, bef- you know, pre that dependence, we might have, you know, we had these enormous dream state existences, you know? Yes,
0: yes, absolutely. I believe that's the case. And I think that you wouldn't have to look any further than the differences between languages that we speak ourselves, speaking broadly about the funneling process, you know, when you look at a language like Japanese that contains a lot of honorifics, that funnels Japanese culture into one that is very concerned with customs and mannerisms, right? Or manners rather um when you have a language like there's such a difference between german and french and german people and french people are different and i've always suspected at the very least that the the language itself as a as a thing that is done right so not thinking of language as something static on a page but as a as a process the same way that picking up a glass is a process i think that that is a constant sort of chipping away and funneling at our connection to what's the word that I should use for it? The, um, the spirit world. I'll just use the spirit world because that's, that's honestly what I, what I think about it. And I, I think that you, when you find, um, you know, people who have mental, you know, psychosis, like schizophrenia or something like that. Right. Um, I think that they are basically that that funneling process has become has gone off the tracks, um, but I'm not entirely certain that it's a it's it's an it's a net negative. It's a net negative in our society, but I'm not entirely certain about that.
1: Well, this of course that connects to you know a a very big doubleness that we all deal with of our our personal interior psyches. Which uh, we have some degree of control over, although that in itself is an enormously idea, weird idea of, of you know who's doing the controlling then, and some of it seems to be completely out of our control. And the degree to which that is happening, and the degree to which that is you know publicly or socially visible to other people, that's a big you know doubleness right there. Who we are inside ourselves versus who we are to other people and to the world. And these different voices going backwards and forwards. And I think that is a very good way to see that conflict when that gets really out of balance. Those are the people that we we describe as as, as mentally ill. That's the only definition that we have. It's in a very imprecise one. It's a very subjective one. And we know that it's it's very culturally determined that, you know, someone who's nuts in a village in Borneo uh, will probably be considered nuts, uh, you know, in uh, Santa Barbara, California. But not, you know, it doesn't work the same way. You know, it, it, there are very different values there. Um, but we, we, and maybe that's, does that suggest then that people really do have different voices going on inside their head. I mean, is it a good assumption that that actually everybody does have an interior monologue?
0: Well, it depends on who you ask, I guess. I think that you and I would say yes. Um, when we were talking about this uh, uh, episode and what we were going to talk about a bit earlier, I, I did a little bit of snooping around online. And according to Popular Science magazine, uh because we love science on this program. Um according to them, eleven percent of people do not hear voices when they read. And I'm not I'm not sure that I I'm not sure that I believe that. And I don't think you do either. No, then, I I
1: absolutely do not believe that. I, I I no that doesn't seem right to me. And I wonder how that was arrived at. Um you know, to me, that sounds a little bit, and I don't want to uh, interrupt for too long, but it seems analogous to those people who swear they don't ever have dreams, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, that's just not true. <laughs> I think they do have <laughs> dreams. There may be a variety of reasons why they, they feel they don't remember them, actually can't remember them, or don't want to talk about them.
0: Right. I would agree with that 100% as well. So, I think that having these voices in your head is a condition of of being alive for a certain amount of time. I think that they do not come from anywhere inside of you, but much like the doppelganger, they sort of occupy two places at once. So, we are experiencing a doppelganger at every moment of every day when we have a thought because it's something that looks very mysteriously like us. If you were to picture a thought in your mind, you, you sort of hear it in your own voice. Um, sometimes it's a bit different, but sometimes it's not. So it looks like you and you think that it's you, but I would argue that it is, in fact, not you. I don't think that your thoughts are any more your own then the words that you are picking up off of a page came came from your head. That, that you particularly invented crime and punishment as you read it. I, I think that we would all agree that that seems like a ridiculous idea. Um, but I think that that can be extended to the nattering monologue that goes on in your head while you're doing chores. <laughs> Which is why I listen to podcasts, because... I would like to not listen to my doppelganger for a few hours while I do dishes.
1: Yes. Well, I think this is, you know, one of the great problems that people have in very, very personal everyday ways or every night ways, so to speak. We, we, you know, desperately seek um, two conflicting things. We want company. We don't want loneliness. We don't want, you know, vacancy. But on the other hand, we want escape from this constant static. And that's a very strange experience. I think every one of us and, and people who are surrounded by people maybe have this experience uh you know more often where they really would, you know, crave some privacy. But think about, you know, what is you know, privacy and loneliness are, are related concepts, you know. Um they're they're shadows of each other. And I think that some, you know, you can have a, a sense of really working excitedly and and uh, enjoyably alone, and then you can have a creeping sense of 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 anxiety and paranoia, even um, so we all deal with those sort of issues and you know I find uh, for myself that the distinction between uh, those two poles, if you like, um, or what make what you know causes that that shift between them is very mysterious and oftentimes apparently causeless, you know?
0: Yeah. I would agree with that very much so. I was um I was thinking back to what we had talked about a bit earlier about when you're a child and you see the world in a much more animist way. It's almost a dreamlike it's 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 got this dreamlike filter to it and it's not just the memory of it, but the way that it actually was. And I would compare it to a sense of, of flying in your own head because um, have you ever meditated? Are you a big meditator?
1: Uh, I, I, I certainly follow what I call meditative practices. I, I only have, um, I mean, I actually, I, I tried sort of a formal sort of transcendental meditation thing many years ago. And um, in the same way that, you know, people might, and might, you know, I have tried yoga, uh, I didn't find the formal uh, approach really worked for me. I wasn't in as much control of my personal surroundings to do it day to day effectively. Um, so I kind of follow my own sort of what I call dog meditation, you know? Well, it's kind of, it's well, okay. It, uh, (laughs) um, I, uh, for many years lived with this giant galumpfy mastiff, um, affectionately known as the world's number one mastiff because he won this uh, pet dog food contest once. Um, but he would have a couple of different postures um, that he would go through. And then of course he you know, also had just the, just lounging with his jowls glued to the couch. Um, but, but prior to the jowl uh, glued pillow sort of thing, he would have a very kind of quiet focus um and there were certain kinds of music uh usually sort of an ambient or you know world music of of a generally meditative kind and uh so i I sort of go mastiff on the couch, and I never fall asleep this is not a nap this is um and I I do the couch because of of the massive memory. I could be on the floor, but then I usually follow that up with some stretching. And I I play my uh, my metal drum.
0: Hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. I have a app on my phone called Headspace that I accidentally paid for because I did a two week trial on it and forgot to turn it off before the trial was up. I'm sure everybody can relate to doing that once or twice. Seventy dollars. Yeah. Seventy dollars for for a year? Well, I'm using it now. Um and in this meditation app, you are encouraged to focus on your breath and also sit in silence and to let thoughts come and go as they please. And what I have found about it, um, because I'm in I'm a maximalist in things like this, so am I gonna meditate for five minutes? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna do like David Lynch and meditate for 20 minutes. And you find around minute 12 or 13 that the thoughts do begin to quiet down if you're sort of noticing them but not giving them the time. You think of thoughts as these sort of doppelganger doubles. You're allowing them to sit in a chair across from you and, and chat away, but you're kind of not listening. I think that that is a, a state that I get into more often than I'd care to admit, where I am just sort of not there. So it's sort of like that with your own thoughts. And when you get to minute, you know, fourteen or fifteen, you experience—I experience at least—a sensation almost akin to vertigo, where I almost feel as though I'm I'm falling. And I think that what that is, uh, Jung talked about this with his depth psychology, with sort of falling into. The depths, as it were, and going on his sort of waking dream journeys, Um, but that sense of of falling, I think, is that kind of field that you're in pre-language, right? And I think that that's the thing. If if perhaps the word funnel is a proper term, but but maybe it's more like we're we're always building an airplane or a boat or something like that, something where we can be rocked along the waves or along the currents of air and not have the sensation that we're falling through space
1: oh well look i have i have that triggers two really important thoughts here uh one for years i did um i mentioned last time I, i i've had um done a lot of sort of uh you know aquatic stuff and uh, swimming in various oceans. I, I have had like three actual drowning experiences and I'm a really good swimmer. But I, I, one of those really um, made me, you know, concerned enough. So I, I did even more, you know, real lone swimming, which is, you know, people would say, well, that's not a, that's not a wise idea. But I really needed to break through that fear. And I had a, a real pregame kind of debriefing and then, a, you know, a deeper stage actually out in the water of just calming. And a lot of it was just, you know, simply calming my breathing and calming, you know, stage you know, making my body as exactly positioned in the water as I wanted. And that, of course, helped me focus the mind. And in doing that, it quieted everything down. You know, it was really focused on being there in the water, which is kind of in that amniotic state again, you know, yeah, yes. being back mm-hmm. in the womb to some extent. But in you know, the other time that I've, I've really been able to do that pretty successfully, and I think it happens, I mean, I have I know other people have felt this too, is uh, in skydiving when you're in free fall, you know, it mm-hmm. um,
0: everything gets very quiet, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. And then sort of the flip side to this, peaceful flying feeling that we have are people who unfortunately become too overwhelmed by these voices, which is why apps like Headspace exist in the first place. And it makes me think of David Foster Wallace, who, you know, unfortunately famously committed suicide uh, by hanging. but He had a piece that he wrote in one of his essay collections, I want to say, and he was talking about Why it is that people who kill themselves shoot themselves in the head. And he called it uh, shooting the terrible master. Mm -hmm. And I think that the key word there is is master. So what happens when these doubles that you have in your mind that are talking to you all the time, what happens when the inmates begin running the asylum? Yeah. In a sense, right? Um, So I think that there's, there's many different sides to these voices that we're hearing, but I would like to hear from you where you think those come from and what they are, because I've, I've sort of given my theory and I'm very interested to hear what you would have to say. Okay. Well, um,
1: I I think that (laughs) to take a sort of roundabout sort of way there, um, I found myself writing down today, we spend half our lives hoping for surprise and half fearing them. And the the surprising thing is it's the same half, Um, that we are constantly sort of, you know, between hope and fear about surprise. And I think we have a sense of hope or fear about ourselves. And... I think that instinct, that, that, that conflict, that binary itself, that tension is where the voices come from. It, it, there's a tension within us that begins to, to make us uh, susceptible to these two very, very oppositional sort of forces, which are also, you know, complementary. The difference between, you know, complementary things versus conflicting things. It is always, always in play. So some of that must come from a deep conflict that we inherit down the years through the species channel. And somehow that then, I think, acts as a tuning frequency where we, we pick up on certain bits of, of information and experience around us, and we begin to build these... Two balancing and oscillating uh, forces that then reflect back on each other, and sometimes they're really cool and good. Um, I'll give you an example. you know Joshua Slocum, the uh, famous solo sailor, had a, a, a great conflict uh, one night. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but it's something I think about a lot. Um, he was sailing a solo around the world and was really sick and was in a storm and, you know, was, was basically dying. And he had this hallucinatory vision uh, of one of Columbus's uh, pilots coming back, a navigator, to, uh, to, to steer the ship while he was collapsed. And it was, you know, obviously an hallucination, but maybe not so obviously. So there was this projected sense of um, strength and support and this doubleness taking on form in a positive way. Whereas, I'll give you another example from my uh, aquatic experiences. I, um When I was living in Australia, one of the places we lived in when I was married was near a small lake that I did a lot of swimming and scuba diving in. There was cool stuff to find from... You know, the gold rush days there. And uh, one warm winter day, very much like it was here today, um, I'd come back from the lake, and the water was very cold, of course, so I I would use a wetsuit. And um, I was working in the front yard with uh, my wife and thinking about other things. I rounded the corner towards the backyard, and I had this sudden sense of incredible shock and uncanny experience. And all that had happened was I'd seen my wetsuit hanging on the laundry line, you know, and it just had this much deeper sense than just, a, you know, a kind of skin suit hanging. It was, it was my, my other, my double, you know, that sense of, but in a kind of scary sort of way. So I, I think that in answer to your question, I think we somehow begin, from very, very early, maybe we begin this way, just full stop in the womb, some balance between hope and excitement and then surprise and fear or, you know, the fearful side of surprise. And between those two poles, we're constantly, you know, creating projections of ourselves And then seeing those projections, seeing, you know, the realities that we're making. And sometimes they feel very familiar and good. Sometimes they feel familiar and not so good. Sometimes they feel strange in an exciting way. And then sometimes they're strange in a terrifying way. And I see those as kind of the the oppositional things that frame everything. And I think we probably take on board language individually in ways that fit that frame Um, with each person's frame being a little, you know, we're all in little different frequencies, but there's still some bandwidth similarities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. You know, you mentioning whether we take this on from the womb or not, there's a guy named Orland Bishop who works with inner city kids who've been in gangs in Watts in Los Angeles. But he's from South Africa and has a, just a bunch of knowledge about African Gnosticism, which now I'm I've taken an interest in because it's just fascinating. And he talks about the experience of you know being born and and becoming human. And he had this great quote where he said that human beings don't learn anything; we we remember, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that. When we're thinking about, you know, all of a sudden, you know, growing up and losing this kind of dreamlike feel and becoming very sort of grounded in a language-based world, when those doppelgangers begin speaking within our heads, when we start to see ourselves fragmented and reflected back into us, I think that if I could put into the terms of an analogy, the way that life might actually work, is that when you become incarnated on this earth it's almost as though you are directly falling away from something that i would call the source with a capital s and it's like you're thrown into this hall of mirrors it's a it's a cabalistic idea that we are are born so that so that god can kind of see his creation through our eyes right that you know that we're, we're here to kind of uh reflect back what has already been made, so in a sense the the substance of the of the physical world that we live in is one of doubles and antagonism and and mirrors because it's the only thing that could be separate from a pure unified whole, not to get too woo-woo, I know I just did, but no, but no I, th- I think that's very clear, actually. it is to me or, or uh, certainly not obscure, okay, excellent, so I think that um I think that our whole lives are this process of remembering and 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 sort of waking up and realizing that we are in a kind of hall of mirrors and that the the strange thing that's going on though is that they're not mirrors made out of glass they're they're literal physical representations of who we are and who we have been and those people those versions of Chris and David don't they don't go anywhere. They're, um, they're ghosts that, that live inside your head. And so you'll often have a voice in your head that's the voice of the time that you were very scared as a child, or the time that you were, uh, in love when you were a teenager, or the voice of the person who you might one day become a crotchety old crone, maybe, hopefully not, but maybe. And so I think that that sort of, um, Doubleness, if anybody is sort of struggling with that and thinking, you know, I just wish that it could stop. Um, you have to kind of look for the, for the beauty in it, because it's, it's a, it's a, it's the deal that I think we made before we incarnated.
1: Well, that's an interesting idea. I'd have to think about that a bit, you know, further. I mean, what I would say is I think that culturally it, it, it's too late in the development of, of human, the human species to, uh, to completely escape from it. But I, I think it is worth saying that, that, at least from my experience, that insofar as we have any way to understand a uh, remote living indigenous mindset, um, and of course we're doing that through heavily developed nation you know, filters of language and contamination and uh, super media exposure. But insofar as we understand the resistance to, um, say, Western uh, or global culture, you know, people in, um, I'm thinking of people on the border between Indonesian-controlled um, New Guinea and uh, Papua New Guinea. And it, this would apply, though, I think, to uh, there are those indigenous people who, who survive around the world in in, uh, in South America and in few parts of Africa and a few islands, maybe in the Philippines, um, maybe a few others, but the resistance is, is, I think we can understand it is, is not to, uh, some of the, the, the cargo of, of the West say, and and some of the, 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 the goods, but it's the noise in the head that goes with it. It's, uh, it's the radio, the TV, the internet, and and then this psychic um, cacophony that those cultures don't want to participate in. You know, they just say, "No, leave us be. We we don't want that constant uh, noise." And and I really understand that. I mean, I think that um, have you? Uh, well, probably not, given the situation, but. Have you spent any time really alone in a you know, a fairly quiet if not, you know, as silent a uh, region as possible lately?
0: No, no. I have the the quietest place that I have been in a long time was in probably in when I visited England and I was in an underground ritual chamber in Bath. Cool. Um and there were no other there were no other tourists around and it was just quiet rios had sort of blasted through the it's you know it's been turned into a museum this uh the the actual baths have and uh, i was underneath them and i was by myself and i was looking at a sacrificial altar and it was just dead silent but that's probably the last time
1: well the experiences that i've had is that and i i I used to try to do this a lot and I, i i do this out in the desert here when i get a chance um the first thing is that there's a a sense of relief and then there is a sense of of you really start to hear the noise in your your head so we say i'm not sure it's really there but where is it really you know because there there is no noise um but we hear a kind of psychic static and it, it seems all the louder in a sense i think this is why some people uh are afraid of being alone in the wilderness. Uh, they don't see it as a good thing. They see it as, uh, as intimidating. That they, they feel a sense of, of the hauntedness kicks in even harder. And um, some people can get, you know, very anxious. They're not anxious about other people coming along. They're anxious about other people not coming along, about there not being traffic. And, you know, so it's too you know, that's another way of thinking about this whole topic is, is how we relate to loneliness or remoteness, you know, the wilderness, is it a beautiful thing or is it actually really disturbing? And
0: suddenly we're left on our own in our own heads, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's just, that's a matter of, um, the uncomfortability of having been around noise. I'm, I'm friends with several people who've lived their entire lives in New York, um, Brooklyn and Manhattan and places like Mm. that. And I went to a writer's retreat about a year and a half ago in upstate New York with those people. And I I was driving down the road with my buddy, Rob, and we were going to pick up beers. And it was a completely unpopulated stretch of road. And he was driving and he looked at me and he said, I got to be honest, I'm I'm really nervous right now. And of course me, I grew up in Oklahoma where the roads are empty most of the time, especially if you drive about five minutes to the east. You know, there's nothing out there. And I said that, well, that's very strange because I feel extremely comfortable in in this sort of area. So it has to do with familiarity, I think. Um, But one thing that you did mention is, you know, how many voices you know, we're hearing at any given time and how people, tribal people all over the world don't want to have anything to do with it. And it it makes me, of course, think of something like social media. We don't have to get too into that, obviously, but if we're thinking about the voices in our heads, you know, it might be a good thing if the voice in your head is the book that you are currently reading. You know, mm-hmm. I'm reading, I'm on a, I'm on a Philip K. Dick bender and, um,
1: Oh, cool. Just, what are you I reading? Just,
0: uh, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh-huh. which by the way is so different than Blade Runner. Oh, um, it's, totally. It's, I had never read it before. I'm a huge Blade Runner fan. And that kept me from reading the book because I thought, well, I've seen this film 25 times. I don't need to read the novel. But boy was I wrong. It's completely different. Um but getting that, you know, getting that voice in your head, it's one consistent voice that you can sit with for two, three hours, how long, however long it is for you to read. But you look at something like a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed, and you are in the span of that exact same amount of time are potentially getting about 500 distinct voices in your head at one time. And I mean, that to me just seems like willfully induced schizophrenia at a certain point.
1: It kind of makes me think of 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 David Bowie's character, the man who fell to earth, you know watching you know like a whole wall of television screens at once you know it uh, it's a weird idea of being able to process information that way, which i mean really I don't think anyone is at that level, but it it's really dealing with an enormous amount of noise and it it you know you can't help but think of. The distinction between signal and noise you know it's uh we're not necessarily getting more signal because we get more noise you know that that's the problem with that idea and i think that um one of the from you know if you look back at at people who are more remote from from technologized societies they're dealing with the the private interior worlds of their minds. And then they have a social situation, which is usually, you know, a couple of square miles and, you know, family and friends. It's very small communities. Whereas we've moved from not only having that interior psychic experience and a social situation with with face-to-face people, which is, you know, stranger and now masked, to mask people. But we've also got this now incredibly mediated world of, of, you know, the, the Twitter feed. I mean, I, I know people who have nothing to do with Twitter and they feel like they're on Twitter, you know,
0: mm-hmm. you, you can't <laughs> I know exactly what you, know? you mean. I quit Twitter two months ago and it's completely inescapable. I hear, well, I hear the news from my wife when I'm driving her to work which is which is great. It's great to just get it for thirty minutes. You know, she told me about. Uh, she's like, "Have you heard about being dad?" And I said, "No, I have not heard about being dad." And I could not be happier. So then I, she told me all about being dad. But um, but yeah, when it comes to you know social media in particular, especially now, I like that you mentioned masks because you know now we're at this point where like it or not we're in a situation where we're not getting uh most of the communication that we're used to getting from people because something like 85 to 90% is non-verbal and of course that's hands and posture and things like that but it's also facial expressions and so i think also because of the the time that we're in you know people are spending more time online and inside and they're spending more and more time with those voices and i you know this is definitely true for me but I have several friends who I who I really feel for because it seems like they're they're not having any fun when they're glued to that phone and sort of ingesting all of these all of these strange doubles of themselves because you you take on the persona of the person even for the split second that it takes you to read a post you ha- you you're, you're when you read somebody's words you're becoming them in a sense and to do that too fast gives you whiplash. Nice way to put it, yeah, yeah. But I had a question, and if if you're not sure about this, that's completely fine because it's totally off the top of my head, but you know how we've been talking about this sort of split between our modern westernized society and how we hear voices, and, you know, sort of juxtaposing that against tribal communities around the world. Do you know if of, of tribal stories about doppelgangers and doubles yes do they, do, oh, do they experience oh, yeah. them often
1: oh yeah they it's a very very common feature i mean it really supports this notion of uh you know that it's a world uh unifying theme that you know the collected unconscious uh a cambellian sort of thing of of repeating motifs it's uh no it definitely demonstrates that there is a, a very very um you know strong linkage uh and it takes the same sort of forms of, of, of you know, a very, usually, you know, the, very much the, the poles of either great ally and asset or the sort of demonic uh, opponent, nemesis, enemy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of middle ground there. It's uh, very, very decisive. And I think that's... Um, that shows that, that even though they may be or may not, we, it's very hard to sort of say, you know, obviously, but freer of, of noise in, in, in the head, that the sense of doubleness uh, and hauntedness uh, pervades. And, and, you know, the anthropological theory is that, well, the, the two conditions that are being, you know, or the, the, the binaries are waking and dreaming and, and living and dead. You know, and between Mm -hmm. those worlds, uh, you you need some you need an ally, and of course, the moment you have an ally, you have a dependence on that ally, which can turn into some sort of shadow opponent. You know,
0: Mm. that's very interesting. That is that is very interesting, and it it makes me think of the fact that a lot of these these sort of tribal folks have a much more developed idea of the spirit world. And also it seems to me to be a much more casual one as well. You know, it doesn't seem like when you look at animist cultures around the world, there seems to be a much more relaxed view of the spirit world than we have here uh in the West. Of course, like, you know, getting rid of the of this sort of atheistic uh contingent of people, even when you get to religious people, um spirits are sort of thought of in terms of hierarchies and things like that and while I'm not saying that that tribal people don't have hierarchies um it does seem to me to be much more casual I'm reminded of um a Siberian people and maybe perhaps it was the Inuit uh it was some tribe up in Siberia but I was reading about these people who hunt for mammoth tusks, right, right. To, to to sell to the to the Chinese, and they, uh, the reporter was somewhat shocked to find out that they were around a campfire drinking uh, vodka and and eating beans, and they had this this doll that was sort of a representation of a particular spirit, and they were they were talking about it. they were kind of roasting it, right. They were sort of like making fun of this particular spirit. They were having a like the way that you would do with your buddies or whatever. And the kind of lack of reverence there struck me as as very interesting. And the way that I would I'm tying all that back, by the way, if that seems like a ramble, um, is is to this idea of of sort of the thoughts and the and the voices in your head. And I would wonder if the if the um amount of sort of schizophrenic mental illness is lower amongst these communities because they have a sort of more playful, friendly dialogue with these voices.
1: Well, that's an interesting way to put it. I, I think there's, this, there's an element of, of, of truth in that. I, I certainly think that's right. I, I'm not sure that, that these cultures have um, a casual relationship um, with the spirit world, um, I think they have a familiar relationship, and I think there's a They're, distinction. Yeah, well said, yeah, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think the fact that, for one thing, it, it, it's a continuous uh, relationship. It's, it's something that needs to be nurtured and maintained. You know, pretty much daily. You know, there, there's a real, rev, there is a deep reverence in a sense. It's just mm-hmm. the, the, what the reverence forms and presents itself. In more uh working fashion, you know it, it's not just big ceremonial things it's not um, on a grand scale all the time that any sort of grandeur comes out of the the discipline of it i suppose uh you know on a, on a pretty daily sort of basis so I think that's a difference that that um, you get you get this Kind of continual, um, well, strength of 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 current. You know, um, I was thinking about uh, here's an analogy. I, I was I was playing my uh, my uh, steel drum today, and um, I don't know if I we talked about this maybe earlier um, when we were pre gaming, but I noticed that having taken a, a you know a few days break, my ideas, you know. Insofar as I ha- can be said to have musical ideas, and I, I don't, you know, know if I really do, um, they seem so much, you know, cleaner and, and sharper and and bigger and brighter, and yet the the delivery of them wasn't as good. And I think that's kind of the an analogy for how we relate to the to the spirit world. Insofar as we do in developed nation style, I think we do on a kind of grand, big, you know, sudden kind of, not very consistent way all the time. And I think we're very confused about what this, you know, the idea of the spirit world means. Some people would deny it entirely. Whereas from, an, you know, what we think of as an indigenous sort of point of view, tribal, traditional living on smaller scale, remote from uh, constant exposure to technology there's more of a sense of, of just daily continuity of, of being um, in shape, you know, Mm, almost spiritually in shape, so to speak, you
0: know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And talking about being spiritually in shape leads me to, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here, um, talking about this kind of thing in, in practical terms. So, We've sort of done a good job here of establishing what we think about these thoughts that are in people's heads, what they are, uh, whether or not those are great things to have all of the time. I'm curious from a sort of animistic perspective, something that perhaps people could try on their own, what what would you say to somebody who says, you know, I just, I have... I'm, I'm I'm having a more uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation rather than a secret sharer situation. I'm having too many of these sort of uncontrollable thoughts in my head and I don't want to listen to them anymore. What would you say? I came to you and asked that. What would you say to me?
1: Okay. that's a, Well, that's a very good uh, practical question. It's something that I think we all face. I certainly face all the time. And I think there are a few... Uh, fundamental techniques that we can look to that have, have some currency around the world and, and, and throughout time. Um, various meditative practices, which we've touched on, and I think people need to, to find something that works for them. But all the techniques that I think that, that I've ever been aware of have something essential to do with breathing, with, with taking control of of the breath process which is you know the heart of life and and making that um something that is a little bit more consciously controlled so that then we can let go you know i think all of the practices seem to be about becoming more aware more conscious which is a really important word that we'll spend more time on later conscious of breathing so that then we can be not so conscious you know to let it go you know think of all those practices and I think there are ways to do that from just simply being quiet and still to uh, certain forms of music certain kinds of movement I find a lot of relief um, in swimming and I think the water and that buoyancy uh, is a way to sort of you know, break free of that. I think reading and taking a little bit more control over the input of, of language um, is very, very important. You know, there's the, the breathing from within and then there's information that we take in from outside. So how much visual information do we take in? One of the things I do in my writing workshops is, and it's based on my, my time with, with blind people, is um, to really restrict vision. And uh, Terence McKenna talks about, you know, intrinsic light of, of just shutting our eyes and getting past those, you know, that explosion behind our eyeballs that, you know, cause it's not totally black and dark and quiet, and, but to try to create that as much as we can. And then when we open our eyes to sort of think about, well, what are the symbols that we're taking in? What is the language that we're getting? You know, how much of that can we get any kind of of control over that? And as with the breathing, to gain control, to to let go of the need for control. You know, I think that's um, and then the third thing is, um, which is kind of where we started this whole idea of doing you know, a podcast together. Is, is the social connections of, of how much exposure to other psyches and presences and bodies of need uh, are we going to open up to, you know? Because we, we tend to find, I think, um, reflections of ourselves and other people. You know, that That's kind of who we meet and know, you know? And we're going to, I think, find the secret sharer or the hides, you know, depending on our mood and our the the care that we, that we give that, you know, we, we can choose that a little bit. So I think sometimes we, we have to really make some decisions about who we're hanging with, who we're reaching mm-hmm. out to, um, mm-hmm. who's our community, who's our tribe, you know?
0: Yeah. No, I love that. I think that that's great. I would add on uh, an exercise that people could do. I think that Chris is tips there are very practical and should be heated very carefully. So when I think of too many thoughts in the head, when I think of too many sort of doppelgangers or spirit voices or whatever you want to call them in my head, I think of having a full inbox of email. And I, like I think that. about I think about people who their entire life's goal is to get to inbox zero. It's this mythical concept of having zero new emails in their inbox. It's not very difficult for me, but for some people it's incredibly hard because they're getting a new email every five minutes. So in order to manage the stress of that, what you have to do is you have to set aside some time for email and then realize that the rest of your time is sacred, that it's not there for email. You essentially have to stop worrying about getting to inbox zero and focus on the emails for an hour and then say, I'm done. So there's a great book called Feeding Your Demons by Sultrim Elyon. Uh, She got this technique from Tibetan Buddhists. And I was reading this book years ago when I was trying to quit smoking and I, couldn't shake the habit. And somebody recommended this to me and the process goes like this, you sit in a chair and you put an empty chair across from you and you you close your eyes and you visualize that demon whatever it might look like. So in this case, I think it would be it would behoove people when they're thinking about these thought patterns that they have. I would I would think of it as sort of myself sitting across from myself because then you're 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 going to you're not gonna give it any sort of leeway because we're really tough on ourselves, right? And I think that you, you sit down with that particular stream of thought, personified, and you say, okay, you've got five minutes. You have five <laughs> minutes to talk. And then when you're done talking, we're not talking anymore. You're allowed to say anything that you wanna say, let it all out, but when we're done, we're done. It's not always gonna work, it's not a perfect system for sure but it has been helping me particularly with some of my mental problems that uh, are somewhat debilitating in my life allowing myself to sit down and say w- w- what are you trying to say to me it's giving it's giving the hides an opportunity to be a secret share in a sense
1: i like that yeah. very much i think that's a great practical example i think that you know that's one of those techniques that it's, I mean, it's actually fun, you know, right. to yeah. to contemplate. And, and that, you know, may be a really crucial element of everything in life is that we break down the darkness, we break down the difficulties, we break down the oppositions through finding some sense of, of enjoyment in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a kind of performance of balance and alignment and symmetry, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, no, I would 100% agree. And I have also been known to threaten them a bit if they pop up after they've been given their their time on the couch, as it were, or their time in the chair, and say, you know, I could always break out the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram if you want me to. I mean, I could do that. Uh, I think that you have a place in my brain. I think that you are trying to help, but you really need to shut up for most of the day because I'm trying to get on with my life. So... I think that that little bit of time, I think people will be surprised at how helpful that really is. I think that that's at the core of good therapy. Um, because, you know, I mean, it's like if you have a dog and the dog is is running around the house and driving you crazy, the solution is not to yell at the dog or berate the dog or punish the dog. It's to take the dog for a walk. So, you know, take those voices out for a walk or sit them down in the chair. I'll be what I would say you know it's
1: interesting because that directly connects with another worldwide uh example of this thinking in in terms of the the art form of of puppetry uh whether physical or shadow you know marionette theater this that's that was you know people go well why would you have that kind of theater why wouldn't you just act it out you know why do you need these figures these sort of effigies well, it's because of that real dimensional projection of the shadow, and you can get this whole world of these things interacting in a way you can kind of, if not control, of course you know uh, you you do the puppet master's control. But on the other hand, you you let loose this internal. This is what you know. I love about uh, Indonesian shadow puppetry. Um, it's this real sense of of the puppets you know the figures come to life of their own and that's another you know great thing world motif of you know puppets coming to life you know petrushka it's a constant sort of story and which is also scary i mean you know we you know puppets and dolls that come to life that's another way of looking that i think we can maybe explore next time about um you know evil dolls you know and, and, and good, you know, puppets, you know, it, it's Pinocchio, you know, I mean, that's a happy sort of story, but it's also kind of creepy. And I think that's another way to think of this, uh, this dialectic it's, it's, you know, it's the friendly thing. And then it's the the scary thing, you know, it's Chucky. It's, you know, right.
0: Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I was going to say that whether or not Pinocchio is a delightful, heartwarming tale or a horror story it really depends on what Pinocchio looks like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so well said. Yeah. Yes.
0: All right. So I think that's a great episode. Thanks so much for listening. Everybody before we go, I want to do the spiel that I normally do at the top of the show, but I was so excited to get into this one that I completely blanked on it. So if you are enjoying this and you're listening to it on the JDO show feed, What I want you to do, and I will put this in the show notes, so if you're on the JDO show, you will see the link in the show notes with all of the references that we have for this episode. But please go to nocountrypod.podbean.com, and you can subscribe there. If you subscribe through Podbean, you will get a notification whenever these new episodes drop. But Chris and I are committed to having them out every Wednesday at noon. So if you happen to not see a notification the episode will be there okay so just go over there and make sure that you're on that no country site um because eventually i'd like to phase out the jdo show but so many of our listeners listen on that i also don't want them missing episodes right so it's sort of this balance that i'm trying to strike other things you can do uh please do tell your friends about this provide a link on social media and talk up the show um been doing this call to action because it's been very very successful. So thank you to everybody who has done that because Chris and I have seen a, a real leap in our downloads over the past couple episodes, which has been, of course, amazing to see. And besides that, uh, you can leave a review on iTunes. I'm going to work on the on the SEO a little bit to make that sort of easier to find, but it's on Apple Podcasts. So. If you Google No Country Apple Podcasts, it'll pop up on the first page of Google search. And that's a little wonky. We're going to try to get that a little bit more streamlined. But for now, that's what you can do if that's what you want to do. And other than that, Chris, I think that about wraps it up. Is there anything that you wanted to add? No, not for this time, David. I think we've got some interesting uh,
1: terrain to explore uh, in next episode and perhaps some continuing ones on this uh extended theme uh, with with some interesting discussions of people like William James and Freud and Jung, uh, the roboticist, Mashiro Mori, and his concept of the uncanny valley. I mean, it's really kind of a unfolding stream on what we've called our hermetic journey. Um, But we hope that that the ideas Really do narrow themselves organically and happily down to relevance to people's personal lives. You know, to how we can be a bit more integrated within ourselves, a bit more happily integrated with our communities and the culture at large, and how we can turn you know internal noise into uh, productive
0: signal.